crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello, welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Brent Noctegal, your host. Thank you very much for listening today. This is a podcast where we talk about the latest in biblical archaeology and biblical history. We're really putting together the Bible and archaeological discoveries from here in Israel. We do publish this magazine. It's called Watch Jerusalem. It goes by the same name. Uh, This is the latest edition, the Israelite Phoenician Axis, which we go into the Bible and also archaeological discoveries to see how this alliance uh, between the ancient Phoenicians and the Israelites really worked. If you don't have a copy of this, this is a magazine that can come to you anywhere in the world for free. So please do write an email to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il requesting that and we'll send you a copy of the magazine. Uh, This is actually the last edition of the Watch Jerusalem magazine. Uh, But don't fret, we are going to have another magazine. It's coming out. It's called Let the Stones Speak will be the new name of our magazine. A really wonderful uh, term and turn a phrase that was coined by the late Dr. Elot Mazar, somebody that we have excavated with uh, for a number of decades now, even going back to the time of her grandfather, Professor Benjamin Mazar. So it's going to be called Let the Stone Speak. It is going to be focused purely on archaeology. It is going to be the magazine of the Armstrong Mazar Institute of Biblical Archaeology, something that we are beginning up, uh, starting up right now here in Jerusalem, uh, an institute that's going to be focused on archaeological research pertaining, of course, to the period of the Bible. If you read Let the Stone Speak or Watch Jerusalem, you'll notice that we do not have a bias against the Bible. Of course, we want to discuss the discoveries that uh, correlate to both the time and the place of the biblical events. And we do that. Obviously, we we are an organization also that do believe in the veracity of the Bible. So we'll put that out there. Um, But as we cover, and as we will cover in this upcoming edition of Let the Stone Speak, we really do just want to make sure that the Bible uh, is not taken out of its rightful place inside academic uh, discussion and even popular discussion relating to the history of ancient Israel. This is the foremost historical text of the period of the Bible of this land. It is the most valuable text to understand what happened uh, anciently and to put it together with the artifacts, with the discoveries themselves. And so it, it, the Bible does have a, a place, a very critical and central place in understanding what archaeolog- archaeologists excavate. And so we will not be shy about putting the Bible together with archaeological discoveries. Our purpose is not to prove the Bible, prove the Bible as an accurate historical document. The archaeological discoveries, as they relate to the Bible, I believe will do that anyhow. Our Really, our mission is to make sure that you don't miss out on so many archaeological discoveries that are coming out of the ground in Israel all the time, both present and anciently, that bring to life the Bible, that show it as an accurate historical text, and then because of because the history is being proven as being uh, accurate, as so far as archaeology can actually do that, 
then the rest of the message of the Bible too is one that is worthy of, of, of us taking great notice of. Today I want to talk about Dr. Elot Mazar just because there was an article that came out, I think this was December 10th, uh, maybe a day after or before that. It was written by Andrew Lawler. He has recently written a book entitled Under Jerusalem or Underground Jerusalem or Under Jerusalem. Uh, and he, he's written in this book, lots of research uh, went into this text, and he's publishing certain articles, perhaps parts of the book, I'm not too sure, at least based on the research. And this article that came out, has been, it's been quite uh, heavily read across the world. And then it's quipped this way, archaeologist Elot Mazar dug with a spade in one hand and the Bible in the other, should her theories be taken seriously? And uh, full disclosure, I work with uh, Dr. Dr. Mazart since 2006. Uh, she's a very close, close friend. Um, and then also just a highly valued scientist uh, in the archaeological field as well. And she did use the Bible as a document that could help her in both locating places of where to dig and also interpreting what she found, uh, which isn't bizarre to interpret what you find through a historical text. Of course, the, the problem that a lot of people have uh, with using the Bible is that it's also a theological source as well. And Dr. Mazar did not hold it as a theological source. Uh, she was uh, irreligious. However, she did use it. She did use it as the best historical source that she had to make sense of the stones, to let the stones speak. Stones, of course, by themselves don't speak. They need to be interpreted by somebody. And not just interpret interpretation that's sucked out of their thumb or based on uh, what they believe might have happened. Of course, you can deduce quite a lot from uh, an archaeological site based on the material remains that are there. Perhaps what happened, whether the site was destroyed, you can get an accurate date, hopefully, uh, as much as possible for, for, those, for that destruction or for whatever happened in the, in, uh, anciently uh, in, at the site. But then to add color to it to actually um, get a, a more full account and perhaps even or really a truer account of what happened, then you need to consult a historical source that describes that place, that time, uh, and, and um, that's what the Bible does. It's the best historical source we have. And Dr. Mazar used it in that way, and she learned that from her grandfather, Professor Benjamin Mazar. Again, we have this article, uh, this, this issue of Watch Jerusalem, remembering the life and work of Dr. Mazar. If you want a free copy, please send your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Again, this article is by Andrew Lawler. It, it really does, I think, capture a journalist's perspective of archaeology in Israel. It is actually quite hard if you're a journalist coming in and you don't have your hands in the dirt, you're not, you're not trained, I guess, to, to, to figure out what really happened or who's right and who's wrong. You're really wading into a minefield in so many ways because you have scholars that have their, everyone brings their own personal bias, obviously, to the field. Um, but then you, you'll have some people that, that interpret the, the evidence coming out of the ground in two diametrically opposite ways. Uh, some would say it proves David and King David and King Solomon and their kingdom from Jerusalem. Others would say it doesn't. It's perhaps a couple hundred years later. And so Dr. Elot Mazar was really at the forefront of driving uh, the discussion about David and Solomon in Jerusalem based on her excavations in the city of David 
and just south of the Temple Mount on the Ophel area in the Ophel area. So a journalist coming in there, he has to kind of discern what's what's correct, and this is hard to do. And so I'll give Andrew Law the benefit of the doubt in that way. However, some of these some of the points he makes, I do want to just push back on and show how they're inaccurate. Just in case you read this article, um, just because just in case it also makes you think of Dr. Elot Mazar as somebody that wasn't uh, a scientist, somebody that wasn't well respected in in the field even, um, but. Nevertheless, um, uh, he takes a few parting shots at her discoveries, her interpretations, and the way some people write about her interpretations as well. Now, full disclosure again, Andrew Lawler quotes from Watch Jerusalem a couple of times. Uh, however, he doesn't uh, give the Watch Jerusalem name. Uh, we are an example, as he would put it, as somebody that takes Dr. Mazar's discoveries and just runs with them and doesn't allow for any type of scientific discussion of w whether it's accurate or not, which is incorrect. Um, nevertheless, uh, we'll get to some of that. I will put, if you're listening to this on the podcast form, I will put it up on, watch, on uh, YouTube. And that way you'll be able to see some of these quotes because I'll be reading uh, quite heavily through this piece. Again, Elot Mazar dug with a Bible in one hand and a spade in the other by Andrew Lawler. Here is, first of all, it starts out talking about the discovery of the Isaiah seal impression. And I'll leave a link in the show notes for you to watch a video about the full scientific discussion about whether it's Isaiah the prophet or not and why we believe it is Isaiah the prophet. I think we, we do a very, a very fair and balanced in our discussion uh, about that. Um, this is what he writes uh, partway through. While much of that reporting mentioned, mentioned the academic passing of the ancient Semitic letters, talking about this seal impression, this bulla that was excavated on the Ophel area back uh, unearthed in 2009 and, and, and then uh, published in 2018, uh, the discovery was greeted by many as the latest example of archaeology confirming a passage in the Bible. One Israeli publication, for example, brushed aside the letter controversy by naming it the top biblical archaeology find of 2018. That was us. Yes, it was the top biblical archaeology find of 2018. 100% it was. And that is based not just on the, the overwhelming evidence that it is actually Isaiah the prophet. And perhaps it'll take finding the full seal impression uh, in the near future or a closer inspection of that seal impression to determine once and for all and put all the arguments to rest whether it is Isaiah the prophet's uh, signature or not. Uh, nevertheless, I think the fact that it's right next to King Hezekiah, a contemporary found in the same strata of soil in the same area, uh, it's not just circumstantial evidence. It's pretty strong uh, evidence as well. Um, anyhow, you can read up on Isaiah uh, if you like. But he did quote us, so I wanted to make sure I, I, I did uh, put, that, put that in. Then he continues this way. Andrew Lawler. Mazar's career was cut short when she died this May, age 64, leaving a legacy of notable finds and an impressive publication record. Up until the end of her life, she remained one of the last university scientists digging with a spade in one hand and a Bible in the other, eager to uncover clues to the people and places des described in Scripture. That Bible as guidebook approach fell from favor among academics long ago. 
Excavators today are generally less enamored of unearthing royal tombs and ancient shrines that with, uh, than with determining what people ate and whom they traded and how their material culture changed over time. Now, Dr. Mazar did all of that as well. Not, no evidence or no archaeological. You can read our publications and no stones left unturned. Uh, there's there's, pub, there's uh, dis- discussion about all the discoveries, the pottery, the context, uh, the bones, the, the uh, seal impressions, small finds, uh, the animal, uh, the, uh, the faunal remains and flora remains as well, all of that. Um, but she's also interested in giving context to the discoveries, showing that if you have a historical source that talks about a building or this area of Jerusalem that was built up at the time it was excavated, or the time that it, uh, that the excavator decided that it was uh, destroyed or, or in use, then why not put those two things together? He continues, the he- Yet the Hebrew holy book continues to exert a peculiar hold over Israeli archaeology. That pull is directly related to the furious political and religious struggle that royals in a city esteemed in, uh, held in esteem by billions of people in different faiths and claimed as the capital of two distinct peoples. Mazar's passing marks the end of a long era, but it's unlikely to alter that stark reality. Now, it's not the end of a long era. Dr. Mazar's passing is, is deeply saddening, and uh, she is one of a kind, unique uh, in every way, and such an expert. Um, however... The, the, the archaeology of Jerusalem is still going to come out of the ground. It's not like Dr. Mazar planted stuff. Did she plant the seal impression of King Hezekiah on the excavation site? Or did she unearth it? Would any other archaeologist excavating that same spot she did unearth the same seal impression? Yes, they would. So I don't think it's going to change uh, as, as far as the what comes out of the ground. Now that it will be hard to find a voice as, as loud as her. And with, I would say, a knowledge of the historical source, the Bible, as she has, to put discovery uh, along with the biblical text, that might change. But we'll do our best to make sure that it doesn't change too much. In fact, we are going to make sure that her discoveries and also the discoveries of the future get their appropriate or are thought of in their appropriate biblical context. Now, he writes, yet the Hebrew holy book continues to exert a peculiar hold over Israeli archaeology. To me, this is just a very bizarre thing to say. Um, The Hebrew holy book, I mean, the Bible, it's a historical document. It details what happened to a certain people at a time and a place. And so it is the best text that we have in Israeli archaeology to help us understand what is discovered. Absolutely. Hands down. I don't think you would find an archaeologist that would disagree. And he thinks it's peculiar that Israel would use the historical source to go along with the archaeological remains. That's not peculiar. That's not strange. That's smart. There's nothing wrong. Just because it's a holy book doesn't make the history inaccurate that it describes. Uh, Let's skip on a little bit uh, as well, uh, because I want to get to a a few parts here. And I I think we're just going to do a half an hour program today. It talks about Elot Mazar in the beginning of her excavations when she was young. 
The 10-year-old Elat Mazar worked on her grandfather's dig. This is Professor Benjamin Mazar of Hebrew University, former president of Hebrew University. Uh, soon after the Six-Day War, <clears throat> uh, Professor Mazar excavated this area just south of the Temple Mount for a 10-year excavation. Absolutely massive. Dr. Elat Mazar, when she was just a child, uh, 10, 11, <clears throat> she worked on this excavation, as did her sister Avital, um, numerous times. <clears throat> Uh, worked on a grandfather's dig, and each weekend she served coffee to leading Israeli academics, politicians who gathered in her grandfather's living room. The younger Mazar went on to study archaeology at Hebrew University and spent much of her time researching a Phoenician cemetery in northern Israel, Achsiv. She returned to Jerusalem for good in 1981. That's not true. She excavated Achsiv uh, numerous seasons after 1981 to assist in a dig led by a former Israeli paratrooper turned archaeologist named Yigal Shiloh. She did excavate with Shiloh in the, in the uh, city of David. While the elder Mazar had uncovered that as Benjamin, the Judean Jerusalem under Herod the Great, Shiloh hoped to find the city captured by David and embellished by his son Solomon a thousand years earlier. Archaeologists had long believed this city of David, the original core of the city, lay outside the walls of the old city today. If you've been to Jerusalem and uh, you've been to the Western Wall, if you go out the Dungate just from the Western Wall and you turn to your left and you head down the hill, uh, you'll be heading to the area of the city of David. That is where ancient Jerusalem is. It's where the most ancient remains exist, uh, ever discovered uh, in Jerusalem. Lay outside the walls of the old city on a rocky spur of land extending south from the city's Acropolis. Biblical accounts suggested that Jerusalem in the air in that era was an impressive city, talking about David and Solomon's, that became the center of a short-lived empire, but excavators had yet to find any sign of early Israelite occupation. Talking about Shiloh now in the 80s and his excavations. After half a dozen years of intensive excavations, Shiloh unearthed impressive ruins, but most appeared to date to previous areas in which, eras in which Canaanites dominated or to later centuries. This absence of evidence was more than a scientific puzzle. It was also a political embarrassment. Israel had incorporated the ridge along with the rest of East Jerusalem into the borders of its national, into its national uh, capital. Now, this is just really bizarre, and, and you need to understand what was discovered in the city of David. Going through this, you would, you would believe that Yigal Shiloh uh, in the 80s didn't find anything from ancient Jerusalem, let's say biblical Jerusalem, when Jews were living there 2,800, 2,700, 2,600 years ago. Yes, he might not have found discoveries that could be dated conclusively at his time, when he was excavating, because a lot of the publication is yet to come out from Shiloh's excavations, to King David's time or King Solomon's time. But what about talking about uh, the massive stepstone structure that has houses built into it from the 8th, 9th century? What about talking about uh, Judean houses? What about talking with ancient Hebrew writing written on parts, uh, uh, artifacts discovered in them? Why not talk about the, the Buller house where 51 seal impressions... From the time of Jeremiah, the prophet were discovered. One of them bearing the name of Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, mentioned in Jeremiah chapter uh, 36, I believe it is. Why not mention that? 
It's like he's saying that it was a political embarrassment for Israel that they excavated the city of David and didn't find anything that would help prove Jewish existence or Jewish claim on the city. That's not true at all. They found an absolute wealth of discoveries uh, here in, on the city of David. They might not have been able to date it at the time conclusively to David's time or Solomon's time. However, there was no politic, there was no embarrassment to the state of Israel. There was no embarrassment to Yigal Shalom. Yigal Shalom excavated in a, in a courageous and brilliant way. He had to, he had to deal with obviously the political scene. He had to deal with the ultra orthodox that tried to shut down his excavation. He would actually die really early in life, just after a year after these excavations ended, or something like that. And so he really gave his life to these digs in many ways. And he discovered rich Jewish history in Jerusalem dating back 2,600 years ago, as far as that which was datable from his time period. So Israel's claims to the, what, the, rain, the ridge rang hollow. Not true. Lie. Not true. This gap in Jerusalem's history gnawed at the younger Messiah, he writes, and I don't know. It's interesting how he writes this, but anyway, uh, he's he's allowed to have a little bit of of little bit of flair uh, here in his writing, I guess. This gap in Jerusalem's history gnawed at the younger Mazar. Quote: This lack of evidence encouraged the argument that in the time of David and Solomon, the city d- didn't exist, as the Bible said. She explained, and you know, there wasn't that much that was discovered from that time, and so people did say, well. Uh, maybe it was the heyday of Jerusalem was the 8th century. Maybe Hezekiah's time. Maybe later. Maybe Josiah's time in the 7th century. Um, but but Dr. Mazar was, was said about going to excavate and finding out. I mean, a lot of Jerusalem, this upper region of Jerusalem, was destroyed from later construction. And it is really hard to, to find the initial construction of buildings or, or dates from the initial construction of some of these buildings because really you need good floors <clears throat> that are preserved. And most of these buildings were used starting David and Solomon's time and continued for 300 years after. And so when you find the destruction, you're not going to find much from David or Solomon's time, are you? You're going to find the material culture from the time period of the destruction. Anyhow, he continues this way. She and her grandfather collaborated in 1986 on a small dig just to the north, that is just to the north of the city of David, near the southern wall of the Temple Mount but failed to find material that could be attributed to David or Solomon's reign. Now, again, this is just, uh, it's not very accurate because, yes, while they didn't discover periods from David and Solomon, they did discover, as I said, a massive building, a large building, perhaps a gatehouse, as they would talk about at that point in 1986, um, that was from the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They did find ancient Hebrew writing on pottery vessels inside this massive building. But it's like he says that, you know, they went there to try and find David and Solomon and they didn't find it. Well, they did, actually. They found the top of a building, but they didn't excavate it, all of it. Dr. Mazar would actually go back to this same site on top of the building that they discovered in 1986 and dig down, 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 down and actually find that this same structure, this same building in the same spot was constructed by King Solomon. So again, the bias in this, it's not accurate. 
It's not accurate to say what he said. Or it doesn't tell the whole story. Let's put it that way. Uh, we'll, con we'll continue. Uh, we'll continue here. It says here, both Mazars were emboldened by the discoveries, talking about the discovery of the Tel Dan Steely that mentions the House of David that was discovered in Tel Dan in the north of Israel in 1993 to prove that David uh, was an actual historical figure. <clears throat> After looking through old dig reports and examining biblical accounts, they agreed that David's palace would likely be found at the northern end of the newly created City of David National Park, which lay at the northeastern shoulder of that rocky ridge of the City of David. <clears throat> so it's going to get into Dr. Mazar's discovery of David's King David's palace. Their analysis hinged on a mention of David going down to the city's Canaanite fortress from that palace. His administrative center, therefore, would be found just uphill from a fort that presumably was located on the slope above the town. She writes, and then she, he quotes Dr. Mazar, There is no reason to doubt the accuracy of the biblical description, Mazar had insisted. The Bible is quite careful in its use of going up and going down. Now, this is beautiful, I believe. The Dr. Mazar would read the Bible. Again, she's not religious. She's looking at this as a historical document. And she says, I mean, it's pretty clear. The Bible, when it comes to geography, is very accurate. When it talks about places and things up and things down, going down, going up, it's not an accident. And so if you go to Jerusalem and you see which way's up, or up is north from the city of David, down would be going down back towards the Jebusite city, the original uh, city before it was conquered by David, the original Jerusalem which David renamed to the city of David. And she says, well, going down means going that way. And so if he's going down from somewhere, the palace must be above where the fortress is. And Dr. Bazaar, as he quotes here, the Bible is quite, she said, the Bible is quite careful in its use of going up and going down. That was her perspective. This was just the sort of literal interpretation that many of her colleagues avoided. And, and that's upsetting, I think, to, the, to, their, it's to their own loss and to the loss of people that are interested in archaeology and history of Israel, that most people wouldn't be that literal when it comes to biblical geography. Now, notice the incongruency here in what he writes. This was just the sort of literal interpretation that many of her colleagues avoided, avoided given that the biblical accounts of this era were written several centuries later by scribes with a political agenda. Now, imagine this situation. It, just say that, you know, the, this history of King David and what happened was written by Josiah 300 years uh, after David had uh, after David had died, just say for for the sake of for the sake of argument that this was when it was written, and and just say for the sake of argument that these historians that were writing about what happened 300 years earlier were biased, that they were writing with their own political agenda into the story. Why in the world would these scribes care then if it's just about political agenda, about going up or going down? Why not just say David went? Why even mention going down or going up, given, giving somebody the opportunity, if you were wrong in writing this, to disprove or give, or give less credence to the political agenda that you're driving, if you are an ancient scribe? 
and it's all just about political bias. What they're writing, they're writing into their own history. If you're a scribe that is trying to recreate a glorious history, you don't make up such specific things as going up or going down. It serves no political gain. It only opens you up to being deemed false if indeed what you're writing is incorrect. So for him to say that Dr. Mazar using going up and going down is, is just not, uh, it's not the way to do it because don't you know that they had political bias so we can't trust them? Again, what does going up or going down have to do with any type of political bias that a scribe uh, would, um, would be trying to write into this history? Nevertheless, we'll continue. But the elder Mazar encouraged his granddaughter to stay true to scripture, pour over it again and again. And she recalled him telling, she recalled him telling her before she died, before he died, sorry, that is Benjamin Mazar, for it contains within it descriptions of genuine historical reality. Now, it does, and, and that's just so wonderful. I think that quote, we might put it on a wall somewhere. It's, it's just a wonderful quote. Historical reality, geographic reality, that's what the Bible does. Uh, and this is what Dr. Mazar learnt from her grandfather. Continuing in this article here, soon after the revelations of the, King, of the David inscriptions and the elder Mazar's death, the archaeologist Israel Finkelstein of Tel Aviv University rocked the biblical archaeology community based on analysis of pottery. He asserted that in 1996 that the archaeological clock used by Mazar and others was off by a century more. That means that the monumental structures at sites outside Jerusalem attributed to Solomon, such as city gates, in fact dated to long after his purported reign, changing the entire, changing the entire understanding of the history of Israel. And indeed it did when Finkelstein came out with his low chronology. And we have articles, uh, perhaps I'll link to one that kind of talk about this and what it is. Um, it did change the entire understanding of the history of ancient Israel in the mind of Israel Finkelstein and in the mind of those that would follow him and deem what he said uh, to be the truth now. That's the truth. And of course, the pendulum has just swung back in the opposite direction from Israel Finkelstein's early theories in 1996 um, to him actually kind of clawing back his own dating. And even this article shows that. For Finkelstein and many of his allies, the Mazars were chasing a chimera. There had been no glittering early capital, no large empire, no treasure-filled tombs as described in the Bible. Now, I'm trying to think about this, and I can't think of the Bible describing a treasure-filled tomb. Now, the Bible does discuss the tomb of the kings of David and Solomon and other kings, righteous uh, Judean kings, but I can't remember them describing them filled with treasure. Now, I could be wrong, um, but that's interesting. He says it descri it's described in the Bible. No scripture to quote where it's described in the Bible, a treasure-filled tomb. Now, I do believe it will be filled with treasure. Uh, we know that from historical sources, from King Herod's time, from Josephus's time, that this tomb was filled with treasure. But as far as it's being included in the Bible, not so sure about that. Um, <clears throat> the legends of David and Solomon were simply the imaginings of a golden era created by later scribes. He argued, that is Finkelstein, that David was little more than a tribal chieftain and Jerusalem a scruffy mountaintop village. Outraged, he writes, Andrew Lawler does, Elat Mazar issued a public challenge in a biblical archaeology magazine article boldly entitled 
excavate King David's palace in 1997. And so um, Dr. Mazar would start excavating here about a decade later. Um, however, you know, it wasn't really a response to Finkelstein's theory at all. I mean, it wasn't. Nevertheless, he needs to create a bit of drama. Uh, so, so he'll put it in that, he'll put it in that, um, uh, in that context. Work began on a cold November morning in 2005, and Dr. Mazar wrote in 2006, almost from the start, ancient remains preserved beyond all expectations were unearthed. And then digging beneath the Byzantine era house, she encountered a Jewish ritual bath dating from the first century. This is in the side of the Palace of David. Uh, below, there were walls made of large stones that were part of a building that had once been nearly as large as a hockey rink. And she dubbed it as the large stone structure. Mazar believed it was built at the same time as a nearby 12-story set of stone terraces that held up a steep eastern slope of the ridge, that is the stepstone structure. Exposed long before, the date of this massive terrace structure was uncertain. Some archaeologists believed it was from the Canaanite period predating the Israelite arrival. And some archaeologists believe... It was from the period of David and Solomon as well. But don't mention that. Let's try and make out Dr. Mazar to be off the wall with her theories. Mazar felt certain that the building she uncovered was part and parcel of the terrace construction. I mean, it makes sense, right? You can see the terrace going up and a wall plonked on top of it. And we excavated the other side of that wall. 10th century remains. And so obviously this, this stepstone structure was created for the building on top. Nobody... Nobody disagrees that the stepstone structure was created for the building on top. It's a question of whether they were from the same time. Uh, yeah, whether they're from the same time. Based on the pottery she found, she dated both structures to the middle of the 10th century. When the Bible says King David ruled the United Kingdom of Israel, it was, she added, clearly the product of the inspiration, imagination, considerable economic investment. Now to fact check this, Dr. Mazar didn't say that. Based on the pottery that she found, she dated both structures to the middle of the 10th century BCE. No, Dr. Mazar produced a window of time, as all archaeologists would do. Produce a window of time in which this structure was built, and this window of time is about 100 years, mid-11th century to mid-10th century, so 1050 to about 950 in there, is the window of time that she gave based on the pottery to the construction of this building. She did not say... It was definitely middle of the 10th century. Now, if you've got a window of time and a structure in a certain place, then what do you do if you're going to try and discover what this structure was? Other archaeologists would just leave it there and say, huh, an interesting massive building from somewhere within this 100 years period of time. What's the historical text say? It says that David conquered the city around this time period. And based on the geography, we know that this was most likely outside the ancient Jebusite city. And so this was a large structure constructed either at the very end of Jebusite rule or the very beginning of Israelite rule of Jerusalem, and it's outside the city walls. It's important to remember that. He writes this. She concluded it likely was King David's palace, though she was careful to couch this as a theory rather than unassailable fact. The claim, however, sparked more than a fierce academic debate, period, it also came at the end of the Second Intifada, the Palestinian uprising following the collapse of the Oslo Peace Accords and the election of a right-wing Israeli government. 
Whoa, steady on here. Steady on. Like, notice that. She discovered it. She believes it was King David's palace. And he links it to the Second Intifada. New York Times did the same thing. He quotes, The New York Times predicted the discovery would become ammunition in the broad political battle over Jerusalem. Whether the Jews have their origins here and thus have some special hold on the place. I mean, to, to talk about Dr. Mazar implying that this was a discovery that in any way uh, in any way was there to try and prove Israel's claim to the city of David. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I mean, just because, I mean, there's no, there's no scholarly debate in archaeological circles whether the city of David was inhabited by the Jews anciently. Now, some, like Dr. Mazar, would say it was King David. Others, as Israel Finkelstein would even say, he would say it was a hundred years later, when there's still still Jews there. But you don't get that type of uh, type of narrative as you're going through this this article. Eventually, he does uh, he does actually quote Finkelstein, as as he does uh, Finkelstein's. I remember when when Dr. Mazar published it, it was King David's Palace. Finkelstein kind of looked at it and said, no, it's a Hasmonean or Hellenistic building. So he dated it to 700 years after King David. Now he's pushing it, uh, pushing it a whole lot earlier. Uh, now he's pushing his dating of it a whole lot earlier. Mazar's <clears throat> um, later publications strengthened her dating case. So there's a little admission there. That as more evidence came out, oh, it really does look like it was probably very early David's reign around that time. But notice what he writes next. Mazar's latest publications strengthened her dating case. But her suggestion that Canaanites were not capable of inspiration or imagination as Israelites, as Israelites struck even her advocates as dubious. Now, this here is just really a, a kind of a wretched um, way of reporting this. He's trying to make Dr. Mazar sound like she's a racist. Basically, that the Israelites could build such a massive, beautiful structure, but the Canaanites couldn't. Now, if you go back and you read her, uh, her reports, You'll see that Dr. Mazar said nothing about the Canaanites being able to create imaginative or uh, inspirational structures, walls. The very fact that the city of David or ancient Jerusalem or Jebus could not be conquered for hundreds of years because of the massive size of its walls shows what they could build. Go and look at around the Middle Bronze Age throughout Israel. Massive remains. Absolutely huge. Were the Canaanites quality builders? Indeed. Did Dr. Mazar believe they were? Yes. Did she think they were imaginative? Yes. But that had nothing to do with her saying that this was King David's palace. She did. She believed that the Canaanites could build such structures. Now, if you go back and you read the context of what Dr. Mazar wrote, it was all in the context of, here you have, right at the end of Jebusite rule, we have a massive structure being built. Now, is it more likely that the Jebusites 
are going to build a massive structure outside of the, of the defense of their city walls when the Israelites, like King David and King Saul, are cruising around the land trying to take over whatever city they can. Is that logical? Or does a massive structure outside the city walls, the construction of it, indicating that there was probably a new vision, a new conception of the city that came with a new occupant? That's what Dr. Mazar was saying. She did not say that the Canaanites couldn't construct such imaginative structures. Now, Lawler here writes in this sentence that Dr. Mazar, bit of a racist, only believes the Jews could do it but not those pesky Canaanites. For, for an archaeologist to hold such an opinion would make them a laughingstock because it's obviously not true going back and looking at Canaanite remains from the cities in, in ancient Israel, in ancient Canaan. So I just want to put the truth out there because it's, it's, really, it's really kind of, kind of ugly, I would say, to try and uh, impugn uh, that uh, is this type of racist claim uh, on Dr. Mazar and the reason why she said it was King David's palace. Lola continues, In her last decade of digging, Mazar turned her attention to the area just north of the park, close to the southern wall of the city's Acropolis, near where she had dug in 1986 with her grandfather. This is where her team unearthed the golden medallion with a menorah, as well as a trove of artifacts including the Hezekiah and Isaiah seal impressions, associated with the Judean Jerusalem uh, before the destruction by a Babylonian army in 586. Quoting Dr. Mazar now, It seems to me that Jerusalem at the time of King David and King Solomon was very much like the Bible describes. It was monumental, a great metropolitan center. And then ends Lawler writes, The claim has been dismissed by consensus of archaeological science, but it's still embraced by American fundamentalists, uh, Christian and Israeli religious nationalists, people as dedicated to the Bible, Bible's veracity as clergy of the past centuries past. Now that's just outdated and wrong. This claim that Jerusalem was monumental, a great metropolitan center during the time of King David and Solomon, it's been dismissed by consensus of archaeological science, well, go get your consensus. Go check your consensus of archaeological science. The discoveries being unearthed on the Ophel that have been unearthed uh, since 2009, 10, 12, 13, 18 show massive, massive 10th century remains. And I, I would just say keep track of Let the Stone Speak. Um, the final report now that is going to really prove this case, I think, beyond a shadow of doubt for anybody, and it'll be kind of earth-shattering, I think for many in the archaeological community, is being worked on uh, right now. But, I, I mean, I don't blame him, again, Andrew Lawler, for, for, for saying this claim has been dismissed by consensus of archaeological science, um, because you do have a lot of archaeologists that would go that far to say that, that Solomon hasn't been discovered uh, in Jerusalem, <clears throat> when he has, when structures from his time have been discovered. The Ophel has got a massive structure, massive wall, 10th century dating for it, based on carbon dating and also pottery as well. 
again, more evidence is coming out. More evidence has been discovered. The publication of that evidence uh, will come out as time goes on. But rest assured, uh, this article by Andrew Lawler is outdated. Uh, I did want to go through a couple of uh, quotes from it. Uh, it is it is a kind of an interesting read and well written, I would say, uh, but just some really key details that would paint Dr. Mazar as really a fringe archaeologist, uh, not really a scientist, really just a Bible believer, and everything she finds is there to prove the Bible. That's not the case. She's digging in ancient Jerusalem. The Bible does say that King Solomon and King David were there in ancient Jerusalem. Was that a narrative that was made up? She didn't believe so. So she excavated. She put it to the test. She finds massive structures on in the city of David, where the palace of David is, or this large stone structure, and also on the Ophel, about 150 meters to the north. What's she going to do? What's she going to do? Say those, those, those massive walls, four meter high, six meter high preservation of a wall isn't from Solomon's time? Why would she say that if, if the dating, if she excavates it and it does date to the 10th century, why would she say it? Now, some people would say it might date to the 9th century, 50, 60 years after Solomon. Really? Really? That's what we're arguing about? Something that happened 2,900 or 2,950 years ago? Really? That's what we're going to be arguing about, whether the Bible's accurate or not? I mean, there are limits in archaeology to find something so precise to a certain really tiny window of time, especially going back that far. There's always just a window of time. And so when you have a discovery of a massive structure and it fits within the window, this largely narrow window, 50, 70 years, um, when you've got a window of time that long and the Bible talks about somebody building at this site within that window... Why wouldn't you put those two things together? I mean, that adds a lot of value to the discovery. That adds a lot of tourism to the discovery as well. But it adds a lot of, I would say, uh, historical validity to what you're discovering. It gives a narrative. It shows the narrative behind the structures. It's not just stone touching stone, floor touching wall, or what these people back then who we don't know what they are ate. That's all good and well, and that's very interesting. I don't want to belittle that. But how about link it with a historical source that describes buildings being constructed right there? Especially when 3 billion people on the earth uh, would be interested in that connection. And Dr. Mazar wasn't afraid, wasn't afraid to do that, and she will be missed uh, because of those theories. However, her work will continue Again, if you haven't received this copy, Dr. Elot Mazar, Remembering the Life and Work of Her, this is the July-August edition of Watch Jerusalem. Please write your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. We'll have a new website, I'm sure, an email address for you in the future uh, to write your correspondence to. But you can get a free copy of this magazine and also sign up for Watch Jerusalem. Now, I will say that if you are signed up for Watch Jerusalem, you'll automatically be continued uh, into Let the Stone Speak, and that will be the title of the next issue that you receive. Again, wherever you are in the world, it's free. Please write for your free copies. If you do have any feedback for the program, please feel free to pass that along. If you have any ideas of what you'd like covered on this podcast about biblical archaeology, you can let that be passed along as well. I'll be happy to correspond with you. Have a good week.